According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians chapter 1, looking at the abounding love prayer request in verse 9. That leads us then to the purpose clause of verse 10, and uh, then the additional information there that's found in verse 11. Uh, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, uh, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, God of spirit, he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the word of God this morning. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to bless our time in his truth today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we give you the praise and glory for um, all that you accomplish in and through us for your good pleasure. We thank you for brothers and sisters that are hungry for teaching. They're not here for the entertainment or the fun and games. They, uh, they want to be equipped, presenting themselves as workmen, needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So equip us this morning, Father, for that work of service. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 1, verse uh, 9, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in epinosis and all discernment. And so we've been dealing with a vocabulary here for knowledge in terms of gnosis versus epinosis. And I'll skip through everything we've covered already and get right to point 10. uh, Paul followed his Thanksgiving offering with an intercession for the Philippians' ongoing ministry and uh, for that ministry to go on. They have already done quite a bit. They've already, Paul's very thankful for everything that they have done uh, from the first day even up until now as fellow workers in the gospel and fellow uh, laborers in, uh, in that struggle, in that conflict. Uh, but now moving forward, uh, with everything going great, he wants them to do more. He wants the, the love to abound still more and more in uh, epinosis and all discernment. And so for love to abound, the verb is parasuo, which we can relate to very easily as Americans because our culture is totally oriented to more, right? More, greater, and uh, that's what this is about. More love, greater love, abounding more and more to have an abundance, to have so much that you have almost too much. And uh, what do you do with all the excess, uh, all the excess agape laying around? What do we do with all this excess agape laying around? And... uh, the applications there. Here's how agape abounds. It abounds via full knowledge and discernment. And these two terms are are interesting. One that we know very well, epinosis, is very well uh, represented in the New Testament, and that's where we spent most of our time Wednesday dealing with the distinctions between gnosis and epinosis. The second term, though, is is obscure. Uh, It is only used once. It has a cognate form that's also only used once. And so between those two verses and then some other secular literature, we have a kind of a sense for what the term is dealing with. But um, we recognize, regardless, with full knowledge and discernment, that the idea of abounding love is not emotional. It doesn't say that you abound in love in all sentimentality or the touchy-feelies or passion or anything like that. 
and uh, the things that you typically think of or, or get written in the books about how to you know, fan the flames of your love kind of a thing, that we're trying to stoke some kind of uh, intensity or passion or something of that nature. No, it's full knowledge. It's epinosis and discernment. It is a thinking process. And in order to for love to abound, you need to think uh, in, in such a way. And this is what uh, we're dealing with here. And so on Wednesday, we took the time to describe what epinosis is. It's intensive gnosis. Uh, but it's not, it's, it's not just simply compiled gnosis. I asked this, well, how much gnosis do you need? Do you need, is it five gnosises make an epinosis? Or is it ten? Is it, if you have ten gnosises, can you combine those into an epinosis? How, how does that work? How much knowledge do I have to get? Because I think I've got a lot of knowledge and, and maybe I've got enough now. No. All right. It's not a quantity. All right. Yes, we're going to acquire more knowledge. And if we are deficient in our knowledge, yes, we have to remedy that deficiency with knowledge. There is a fix for ignorance, and that's called information. We can fix that. But with our knowledge, we want to include love, and that's the key. It's, it's gnosis plus agape that equals the epinosis, all right? And if you want to make a little mathematical formula out of it, I think that's useful, and I think we can defend that uh, biblically in, the, in what we're seeing here in these epinosis applications. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, right? And so as we're looking at it there, that's 1 Corinthians 8, 1, gnosis puffs up. And the thing is, is if you, you can accumulate a lot of knowledge, but if it's minus grace and if it's minus love, um, you will not be functional in the, in the Christian walk. That's, the, uh, that's, that's 1 Corinthians 13, right? With, without love, you could have all knowledge so as to, what if you reach the point of omniscience? What if you know everything and you're still minus love? That's the point being made there in, in 1 Corinthians 13. So um, we want to understand this, what the epinosis is, the different uses of epinosis. We had a verse list we were looking at. Uh, Christopher reminded me that uh, we didn't quite get through all of those. And, uh, and so I apologize for that. I stopped with Titus and we didn't get to the ones after Titus. We can uh, remedy that here this morning a little bit if we need to take a look at a few more of those epinosis verses. But the idea of epinosis being full knowledge or real knowledge, uh, sometimes the translators put a little adjective in there to try to set it apart um, in, uh, in the places there. I had stopped with uh, Titus uh, talking about... Um, that so, which means we didn't look at Philemon, we didn't look at Hebrews, First Peter, or Second Peter, and those were the the uses we didn't get to on Wednesday. So we can pick it up there if you'd like. But the idea of of epinosis being gnosis combined with grace and love—that's fundamentally what we're dealing with. We're not just growing in knowledge; we're growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We recognize that without grace, without agape, uh, gnosis is just information. And we have that tendency, if we have more information than somebody else has, we have a tendency then to manipulate that advantage into something carnal. And we don't want to do that, clearly. Uh, It's not uh, the will of God for us to do that. Remember, at the judgment seat of Christ, not one of us is going to be evaluated based on what we know. Not one, all right? The judgment seat of Christ is not a Bible quiz. (laughs) and Jesus is not going to give us a grade based on how much gnosis we have, or even epinosis. It's not what we know. It's what we do. It's our production that gets evaluated. The fire is going to test the quality of each man's work, you understand. All right, so uh, a few more other uh, epinosis verses. I like Philemon 6. 
Uh, in Philemon 6, and I'll just bring it up here. We can save ourselves from flipping. And it's interesting, too, he's giving thanks to, the, uh, to, to Philemon. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective. And this is a marvelous verse, and Philemon gets overlooked too often, and it's got such amazing doctrine and we should pay more attention to it. But that the fellowship of your faith may become working, may become, it says effective, but it's, it's energeo, it's for the, the purpose of work and for the achieving of something. See, fellowship is not just chit-chat around food. Fellowship is not talking the weather or sports or politics or Trump or whatever. Fellowship, the fellowship of your faith is a sharing of your faith. The koinoneo, the sharing of your faith. And, uh, and it's supposed to be working. It's supposed to be, uh, inter- the, the, the adjective is intergase. Uh, effective through the epinosis of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. The epinosis of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. And that is a whole realm of study all on its own. But the, the recognition there that epinosis has that role to play in, in us identifying with who we are in Christ. The good things that are in us for Christ's sake centers on our positional truth in Christ. That I have a spiritual gift, that I have eternal life, that I am um, a member of the royal family of God, that I have God, uh, God's imputed righteousness to my account. All the, the package of things that we receive at the moment of salvation. Do we know what those things are? Do we have gnosis of what those things are? Do we have epinosis of what those things are? All right, Are we so centered in who we are in Christ that we're able to fellowship, that our fellowship one with another becomes effective? It becomes uh, a one of achievement or accomplishment. And so we have the, uh, the application there. So that's Philemon and verse 6. Additional uh, epinosis uses that uh, had I seen, I didn't scroll down enough Wednesday night, and had I seen that, we could have knocked these out in our final minutes Wednesday night. But First uh, Peter 3, 7, you husbands live with your wives in the same way, in an understanding way. That's gnosis, that's not epinosis. Okay? God does not expect us to epinosis our wives. <laughs> Good thing. Okay? Oh, I'm going to get in trouble this morning. All right. But Proverbs agrees with me here, or I agree with Proverbs, you know, that there are the, the way of a man with a maid and some of the things that are beyond human capacity to understand, okay? In any event, make of that what you will. I'm simply pointing out the gnosis of 1 Peter 3.7 rather than the epinosis of 1 Peter 3.7. But then in 2 Peter, there's a long chain of epinosis and gnosis. goes back and forth in 2 Peter chapter 1. So we can look at that as well. And uh, even take it to the start of the chapter here. Um, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the epinosis, in the full knowledge, in the epinosis of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the epinosis of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. And so epinosis appears twice there in that opening paragraph. Twice in the, in the opening to Second Peter. In what is fundamentally, I think, 
a, uh, a watershed passage that, that puts things in perspective uh, that uh, 20th and 21st century Americans usually live uh, in complete denial of and rejection of. This is a powerful chapter for the sufficiency of Scripture. And far too many believers ignore this passage and ignore other passages and believe that God has not provided all things necessary for life and godliness. That we need to supplement the Word of God with extra stuff. We need to add human psychology to our doctrinal understanding. We need to add chemicals to our doctrinal understanding. That we can't get through daily life without, without something in addition to the Word of God. But the Word of God says it's sufficient. That he has, he has granted to us, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. All right? And that's everything is everything with respect to that. And we're going to have more discussion on the all and the everything principle here a little bit in, uh, in Philippians. But that's in the epinosis of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. And then further down in the same paragraph, he says, for by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. Do you know the Word of God? Do you know the promises? Have you hidden them in your heart? <coughs> so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, gnosis. In your gnosis, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. Okay? And we finally get to love there at the conclusion of Paul, of, uh, not Paul, Peter's development here. Okay? Notice gnosis is a part of that process, but gnosis is not the end of that process. The goal of our instruction is love. Okay? And so love becomes the end of the process. And as soon as love is there, and as soon as love is abounding, what happens? We're back to epinosis again. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, or we might say abounding, Paul might say abounding, if these uh, <coughs> qualities are yours, and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the epinosis of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So right there, along the, along the way, it's the same thing I've been saying, it's the same thing that we've observed in Corinthians, we've observed in Philippians, we've observed time and time again, gnosis plus agape is what turns it into epinosis. Right? We've got to be growing in grace and knowledge. That love must abound for the gnosis to become the epinosis that we're supposed to be growing in. And so, uh, anyway, I'm thinking about adapting that verse, by the way. Neither useless nor unfruitful. Isn't that great? I want to be neither useless nor unfruitful. And, and this verse explains how to, how to do that, how to make that happen. In fact, I think I may start adapting this for that dreaded how are you question. Whenever people say, well, how are you? I'm neither useless nor unfruitful. You know, how are you? And, and just throw it back, okay? Find a biblical way to respond to the insane thing that drives me nuts. All right, so that's uh, that's the use there, and uh, a lot of that from Second uh, Peter chapter one verses two down through uh, verse eight. The final uses uh, come in two twenty and three eighteen. In two twenty, it's um, talking about a believer that knows better but gets wrapped up in sin <coughs> because uh, that's obviously a snare. We don't want to fall into that. If you think you can't, think again, you can. <laughs> Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. <clears throat> but it says, uh, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. 
For if after they have escaped uh, the defilements of the world by the epinosis of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. And it's, it's heartbreaking, <coughs> the, the believers that point to that and they think it applies to unbelievers. They say, well, that person was never saved in the first place. They just made a profession of faith. And they weren't truly born again. Because, see, they've got a theology, they've got a doctrine, they've got an assumption, uh, some kind of a prejudice that says that a true believer would never fall away like that. And if he does fall away like that, then it just proves that he was never a true believer in the first place. Okay? Well, that attitude does not reflect what this text is talking about, especially when we observe the epinosis that's, that's right there in the, in the middle of it. We have escaped, this person has escaped from the defilements of, uh, of this cosmos and did so by the epinosis of uh, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not just the gnosis, but the epinosis, all right? They are believers. There's no question they're believers. And they are again entangled in them and they are overcome, all right? And so any believer in can, through reversionism, through darkness, you can grieve the Holy Spirit, quench the Holy Spirit, all right? If your theology says you can't, then your theology has some silly Bible verses because the Bible verse tells you, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And it uh, makes no sense for God to give a command if it can't be done, okay? But He does give the command because it can be done. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, we can quench the Holy Spirit, and He tells us not to. And so in the process of that, <coughs> excuse me, I had phlegm this morning. In the process of that, if, uh, if a believer does fall into darkness and does walk away, that last estate is worse than the first. What's worse than being an unbeliever? Being a carnal believer. All right? The unbeliever at least has mercy. God's mercy, uh, because they act ignorantly in unbelief, is, is one thing. But then a believer who should know better? He doesn't get that mercy. He gets the discipline of a God and Father who loves him. And so clearly that last state is worse than the first. Okay, It's nothing to do with dying and going to hell, of course. That would be ludicrous. Finally then the, uh, the last use is uh, grow in the charis and the gnosis of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that might be surprising because, well, why isn't it epinosis there? Because I think it's deliberately gnosis there to show us that combination of grace and gnosis. It's like the combination of agape and gnosis. It's, the, it's that tandem that shows us that gnosis by itself is not God's purpose. That we have to have grace with knowledge, we have to have love with knowledge. If we're minus grace and love, then, then our gnosis will never become epinosis. So I'm not surprised to find um, gnosis in verse 18 rather than epinosis. I, th- I think just the opposite. It would be unusual to see epinosis there um, because of the tandem with, with grace that's mentioned. Alright, so that's the last that we should have gotten to on Wednesday and, uh, and failed to. <coughs> now, epinosis we're very familiar with. Uh, eistasis we're not. Eistasis is, is obscure. It's, uh, it's, it's only used one time in the New Testament. Um, it's got, uh, there's a cognate noun, eisteterion, uh, that also is only used once in the New Testament. Um, through, the, through the root uh, verb and through some other uh, secular usages, we can get a pretty in, uh, clear sense <coughs> for what it's dealing with. It's talking about the faculty to, to, uh, to apprehend what you're looking at. And a lot of times we can see things uh, 
Or we can look at something, but we don't really see what we're looking at, right? And there's a difference there between looking at something and seeing it for what it is. And uh, so this is a, a noun or a, <coughs> or a uh, they're both nouns, aesthesis and aestheterion. Aesthesis is number 144 in the Strong's Index, and that's A-I-S-T-H-E-S-I-S. And have you ever written a thesis? All right, so you got kind of a concept there. Um, but you want, you, if you're trying to get information across and you want somebody to see what you're talking about, okay, that's maybe kind of an idea. Uh, but the idea is perception, is that not only are you observing it, but the significance of it is real. And, and you're, you're observing it for what it really is. And it might be the opposite of what it's presenting itself as, okay? It's presenting itself as a friend, but you perceive, no, 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 this is a snake. This is an enemy. This is someone that's, that's designing my harm. And so sometimes it's then important to have, and that's what Hebrews talks about, that faculty of the mind for truly perceiving, for not just swallowing what they're dishing up, but seeing it for what it really is. <coughs> All right. I was going to show you some secular uses as well, but I don't, I don't think I've put those clips in there. That's fine. Um, Hebrews 5.14. So we see here, uh, again, the text in... Uh, Philippians, that your love will abound more and more in epinosis and all. The key adjective there is all discernment. Not all kinds of discernment or a lot of discernment, all discernment. There is no discernment that is accepted when it's all discernment that is provided for. Okay, Hebrews 5.14 is the other use. Not of eistasis, but of a related form here, eistaterion. So if eistasis is the activity, the process of observing something, so it speaks of the activity. Um, eistaterion speaks of the faculty that can do that activity, the capacity to do that activity. And uh, that's what we see here, which is why we have to grow up, why we can't stay babes, why we can't uh, just drink milk all our life. Uh, that... Um, we should grow up. Solid food is for the mature. So at the end of Hebrews 5, he mentions Melchizedek and really wants to expand upon that, but he can't. There's a realm of doctrine that, that the author would love to pursue, and he can't. He says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And that's a snare. That's a snare for believers. Not hard of heart, but dull of hearing long enough that leads to hardness of heart, all right? Where uh, you're not as hungry as you used to be and you could take it or leave it. That's, that's dull of hearing. And that's a snare. We've got to be on guard against that. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. And, the, and it's interesting because I think it speaks of a regression that they used to be older than they are now and they've actually regressed back because i think the come to need milk speaks of 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 a beginning of an inception of a process and uh and so uh whereas they have previously been weaned uh, weaned now they're back to the milk again for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant but solid food is for the mature. And notice now, who because of practice, not because of 
more Bible classes, not because of more intake or more knowledge or more study, who because of practice. See, if you're a hearer of the Word and not a doer, if you're a hearer only and you just learn and learn and learn and learn and learn, then you are ever learning and never coming to the epinosis of the truth. It takes practice. It takes the love application of what you have learned. So who because of practice have their senses trained to discern. And that's what we have here with the Eisthetarion in Hebrews 5.14. Have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Alright? So we should all have this. We should all have the Eisthetarion, the, the senses trained to have this kind of discernment. The, to be able to distinguish uh, good and evil, right and wrong, good and bad, inferior, superior. All these contrasts that we have to make. We're learning how to be discriminatory this morning because uh, the abounding love requires the epinosis and all discernment. All right, discernment is discrimination, and if it, if it helps to use different English words, fine. Use different English words. If uh, if you're absolutely wrapped up in the idea that discrimination is bad every time, well then okay, limit your discrimination use to bad uses and limit your discernment uses to good uses, and maybe uh, maybe. Uh, You'll feel better about it. But it's the same word in Greek. It's the same concept. Even in English, it's the same concept. Discrimination's a good thing. We should discri- By discrimination, that means that we are equipped to, to categorize things, to draw a line in the sand and put stuff left and right as, as appropriate. That's discrimination. <coughs> and we should be equipped for this, to discriminate appropriately. Again, back to Philippians 1, it's all discrimination in epinosis and all discernment. All. There's, there's nothing we don't want to discern about. There's nothing that we wouldn't want to apply the Word of God to. We don't have any realm of our life that we exclude from a doctrinal perception. All right? So that means our secular life as well as also a spiritual life because we are taking the Word of God and we are holding that up for the appropriate discernment. In, in everything. It says all discernment. And so what, what realm of life would I want to exclude the Bible from? What realm of life would I want to say, well, okay, you know, um, it doesn't matter. I'll just, I'll just do whatever I want to do and I'll approach this like I'm an unbeliever without doctrine. What? Who wants to do that? Why would I do that? What, what realm is there possibly to do that? Okay? No, it says all discernment. And so from... Um, the kind of uh, occupation I pursue, the kind of business I would work for, the kind of, uh, you know, where I'm going to live and who I'm going to marry and, and, and all these things, those are earthly decisions, but they better come with spiritual discernment, right? Because I want to do the right thing in the right way for the right reason. And, and, and so it might be on a practical basis, uh, maybe I, I make identical decisions to what an unbeliever might make, but he's making them for wrong reasons, I'm making them for right reasons. And, and if we happen to make similar choices and they coincide, well, who cares? I'm making the right decisions for the right reasons. And that's the point. <coughs> and so we should be equipped to do this. So with epinosis and with all discernment then, this is how love abounds more and more. And I think if we don't pursue these things, then we, what we are really dealing with is a love deficiency. That we really, um, if if we're not willing to apply the discernment of doctrine to our life, do we really love doctrine? Do we love the Lord? Do we love our walk in Christ? 
if uh, if we're just going to compartmentalize and and uh, we'll get we'll get kind of spiritual on Sundays, you know, we'll we'll sit there and we'll listen to the guy in the suit and tie for an hour. But then Monday through Saturday, then we're just back to living in the world again and doing whatever. And and uh, let me tell you, that's not agape. That's not abiding in the love of Christ. That's not what He would have for us to do. And so uh, hopefully we can be we can be clear on this as well. Now. I like the fact that verse 9 is not the end of the prayer. He doesn't just say, you know, I pray that your love will abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't drop it there. We could, and we could glean what we've gleaned, and we can learn and say, okay, that's a good thing. I want to grow. I want to have abounding love, and I want to have epinosis, and I want to have discernment. Um, But he doesn't just leave it there, okay? He expands upon it. He gives a purpose clause this is the, uh, the so that language here in verse 10. What, what good is it to have discernment if you don't use it? <laughs> okay? Um, so that. What's the purpose of this epinosis and discernment? What's the purpose of this abounding love? So that you may approve the things that are excellent. If you're not equipped to do this, you can't do it. And you need to do it. We all need to do it. We all need to documento approve the excellent things. We are God's living testimony. We are God's um, grocery store sample demonstrators. That's who we are. And this whole world is the grocery store, right? And the unbelievers are walking around shopping. And we are the ones that are displaying the excellent things, Okay? to not only the unbelievers, but sadly, believers that are not living the Word of God themselves. But we get to be the demonstrators. We get to be the provers, the um, approvers of the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So not only does it shape how we conduct our lives, but we actually display that for those who are not so shaped, for those that are not so abiding. We need to model what discipleship is for the non-disciples to observe. And, and it lays it out there as a contrast. I mean, it lays it out there to, to the point where uh, a regenerate person that's not a disciple uh, can be very convicted very quickly when they observe a Christian walk that they don't have and they're supposed to. Okay, And it becomes a, it becomes a point of contrast. And they can look at you and me and they can look at anyone else that's demonstrating the excellent things and by demonstrating the excellent things, you're also not demonstrating the, the non-excellent things, okay? The anti-demonstration of the anti-excellent things. Um, and and <coughs> people see that. And they, they, they have then have to answer that to themselves and their soul before the Lord. How come I've called this excellent and this other believer doesn't call it excellent? Why are they shaped by love and epinosis? And, uh, and I seem to be pretty worldly, right? Because if you're not transformed by the Word of God, what happens? You are conformed to this world, conformed to this age. And practically speaking, yeah, you're going to go to heaven when you die, but in the meantime, there's not a lick of difference between you and that unbeliever that in terms of how you're living and what you're doing. It's sad, absolutely sad. So uh, this is point C, by the way. <coughs> The appraisal of abounding agape allows us to demonstrate the differences. To demonstrate the differences. 
And, and to me, it's a beautiful demonstration. It's a beautiful principle. It lets us be gracious in our demonstration, not legalistic or Bible-thumping or, or ugly in our haranguing. Okay? There's no call for that. But as you live your life, as you demonstrate the excellent things, that itself is the display. That itself is the aroma. It's either an aroma of life to life or it's an aroma of death to death. And either a sweet-smelling savor for those, you know, he that has a nose to smell, let him smell. Okay? It has, it's an aroma of life to life for those that are equipped to smell that. But it's also an aroma of death to death to those that, uh, you know, the, the perishing ones, those that <coughs> for whom it's not a good aroma. We studied that in in 2 Corinthians. So, um, again, here's the purpose clause in Philippians 1.10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ. And, and that too is interesting. We want to be sincere and blameless to the day of Christ. I want, to be, I want to be confident when the trumpet sounds. I want to be anticipating the Bema seat. Right? Don't you? Do you want to be nervous about the Bema seat? Do you want to be uh, shaky when the trumpet sounds? I don't. You know, first, first John talks about those that shrink away from him in fear at his, at his coming. I don't want to be that. I want to hear the trumpet and shout hooray. Because the Lord himself descends with a shout. I'm curious what that shout is. I, 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 I intend to shout, okay? May not have time in the twinkling of an eye, but I'll, I'll shout the best I can because I'm looking forward to that. I'm excited about that. It's going to be finally, let's go, Okay? Um, but I think there's others that are going to be shouting a, a different kind of shout, a kind of an oh no, kind of an ooh, okay? When you get caught in carnality, or you get caught in, in whatever you're doing, and that trumpet sounds, okay? And it's no different from any other test. You know, did you have college or high school or school of some sort, and you, there was a test, and you were absolutely not ready for it, okay? And you were just hating yourself because you knew it was coming, and you have no excuse, you knew it was coming, and you're still not ready for it because you were doing other things instead. And uh, well, who's to blame? But then there's other tests where like, yeah, I'm ready for it. I know this left and right, up and down, backwards and forwards, I'm ready for this. In fact, I'm going to be disappointed at how easy this test is. They're giving me this multiple choice thing. Who needs those? That's the answer, that's the answer, that's the answer, that's the answer. And then you just kind of read through the multiple choice just for amusement to say, well, what were those wrong answers they thought I would be tricked by? You know, and you read those wrong answers and you just laugh. And you say, that's, that's stupid. Who would and because you know the material, you're so solid on it, okay? You even get a little bit disappointed. You think, I could have written a better test than that. What, what was that? So you were ready for it. You were prepared. That's what I want the Bema seat to be for every member of Austin Bible Church. I want the, the judgment seat of Christ to be that end-of-life evaluation whereby you're, you're ready. You're ready to not only rejoice in the gold, silver, precious stones, but also testify, yep, that's wood, hay, and stone. Yep, burn that up. Yep, let that go. And, and, and in full agreement with God, embrace that judgment seat of Christ in the way that it should be embraced, whereby we are ready. And so in the second part of verse 10, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, that's, uh, we'll get to that <coughs> in the second aspect here, but to be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ uh, speaks of a confident believer that's uh, accountable before the Lord and, and no problem. You know, they, they, they're not dreading that coming day because they have that attitude today. 
They're already transparent before his, before his judgment, before his, his hand, even now in time. And so they're sincere and blameless now. And, and if, if the judgment seat's still years off, that's fine. They're ready right now. They're, uh, they're an open book before the Lord right now anyway. So uh, in order to get there, though, here's what we're saying. In order to get to that sincere and blameless position, notice it's an in order to be. In order to be, if you're going to get to that sincere and blameless reality, you have to be involved in the approving process from the first part of the verse. You have to be engaged in the approval. That is, you yourself are giving that approval. You yourself are acting as a judge. You're acting as a, as a discerner. You're acting as, a, as, as one that's, that's administering this justice already. Okay? That's why you're not afraid of God's justice. You're already in tune with it. You're already judging things. You're already discerning based on His standard all day, every day. And so that standard doesn't scare you. You're ready for that standard when it's time for you to be discerned. Okay, does that make sense? All right. <coughs> you take a antihistamine to clear up the phlegm and then you end up with a little fuzzy thinking and you wonder if maybe I'm just preaching under the influence or I'm, <laughs> something is coming out kind of strange. I tell you, it's not like the early days though. In those early days, I worked in the jail for four years and did that C shift got home at 7 in the morning, or got off at 7 in the morning, and went home, showered, changed, put on a suit, and I don't know what I was preaching on some of those Sunday mornings, because it was just tired in, uh, in an all-night kind of thing. All right. So, uh, abounding agape. And what does abounding agape have to do? It equips us. It allows us to discern. It allows us to approve. See, this love is not just something to have. It's not, uh, agape is not just something that, okay, I have it, it's nice to have it, um, uh, you know, I get a, a little gold star for having it, or, or there's a, you know, a, a credit, you know, some kind of a gauge that shows that I've got more than you. And uh, no, agape is something that I have and it's something that's demonstrated because it's applied. God so loved the world that He gave. Christ so loved the, the church that He gave. Agape will motivate giving. It motivates doing the sacrificial benefit to others in the outworking of our love. And in this case, the outworking of our love is an approval. And that approval is for the sacrificial benefit of others. The things that are excellent. All right. And so here's our old friend, Daki Mazzo. <coughs> You're probably sick and tired of this word study because I think I've done it 20 times in the last 20 years. Um, but it's my favorite. I love it. It's, it's a great word, dokimazo. And uh, I won't give you the other forms. There's dokiman, dokimas, and there's other cognate applications uh, to it. We'll just limit it to the verb this morning, dokimazo. And understand that it is a test. Dokimazo is a test. It's an examination test. It's a test for approval. And it's not peirazo. That's the key. Understand that. We're not to put the Lord your God to the test. That's peirazo. And when Satan tests you, it's not for your approval. <laughs> when Satan tests you, it's for your downfall. It's for, to trip you up. And so it's useful to us. I like, it's a distinction between test and tempt. And I would rather use tempt for the peirazo verb. I would rather use tempt and temptation for the negative stuff that Satan's doing or other humans do or unbelievers do or sadly we do sometimes if we, put, if we tempt the Lord or put the Lord God to the test. That's temptation. That's peirazo, and God cannot be tempted, right? And He doesn't tempt anyone. But He, dokimazos, He tests all of us. 
And that's His business to test us. Because God is in the, in the business of suiting us as a bride for His Son. And if we're, if we're ready to come home, then He'll bring us home. And if we're not ready yet, His testing is going to make clear that we're not ready yet. There's still more growth to attain to. There's still more work to, to, uh, to achieve. That's what dokimazo is. Dokimazo is testing for approval. The secular uses are, are, are useful. I think it, 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 it um, speaks to the approval process of, a, of a, uh, a blacksmith, for example, who's crafting a, a weapon, uh, a blacksmith in the forge that's testing the quality of his steel. And as he's molding the, uh, the steel, as he's pouring the steel, and he will test, he will dokimazo the quality of his steel. And if it doesn't pass the test... It doesn't become a sword. He never finishes it. it there's no point in, uh, in uh, you know, shaping the blade and sharpening it and, and you know, putting a hilt on and all the rest. That, that's not a suitable weapon for battle. Because without the dokimazo approval, if the metal is not approved, don't sharpen the metal and put it in, and put it in the hands of a soldier and send him off to war. All right? And so... What we deal with here now there's 22 uses of of dakimazo, <coughs> and they're useful uh, because they they go with the discernment principles and they go with the uh, the uh, discrimination principles. Uh, how how can you dakimazo if you're not equipped to discriminate? Okay, uh, clearly they go hand in hand. So if you can discriminate between good and evil, between right and wrong, between uh, the the excellent things and the non-excellent things, then on that basis you can dakimazo. You can approve the things that are excellent, and, and you are expected to, all right? So, Romans 2.18, <coughs> and did I give you all 22? I might have. <laughs> I gave you a lot of them. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. All right, I gave you 18 out of the 22. How about that? I spared you four of them. But Romans uh, 2.18. Keep in mind, there's a warning that's attached here. Remember, there's the Romans 1, uh, uh, immoral depravity, and then there's the Romans 2, moral depravity. A bunch of religious do-gooders that think they're better than that Romans 1 crowd. And uh, the Scripture warns them, says, hey, guess what? Your moral depravity is no better than their immoral depravity. Okay, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in this rebuke, he says in verse 17, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, that's Dokiamadzo. And they do this. They can approve the things that are essential. And you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another. So you see all that? That's a long, glowing introduction here that's praising them left and right to the hilt. And then it says, look out. Okay? Do you not teach yourself? (laughs) Why are you such a hypocrite? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Say you're guilty of all of this. And, uh, And yet you think you're so much better. So... Uh, that's kind of interesting to me that the first use of dokimazo comes in a warning passage such as this. Uh, especially since you and I are expected to dokimazo, let's realize that God's going to hold us accountable. 
if we're docomazoing certain things and we're on display and we're pointing that these are the things that are excellent, do we then have some kind of a hidden life where we're secretly pursuing the things that are not excellent? Okay? We can't be on public display demonstrating all this glory and then in a hypocritical fashion living a, a double life in, in darkness. All right, so that's Romans 2. Romans 12. I alluded to this earlier, and we know it so well. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay? That's why we're in the Word of God. That's why we let the Word of God transform us. That's why we're consistently living in doctrine. So that, purpose clause, same purpose clause we have in Philippians. So that you may dokimazo, prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, we're, on, we're the displayers in the grocery store. And we are living out the will of God in our life. And that is a public display. That is a demonstration for approval of the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. <coughs> a lot of uh, connections between Romans 12 and Philippians 1. How about uh, Romans 14.22? The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. This is talking about our personal application. When we've examined an issue and we've applied the Word of God to it and we've come to a conviction. I've, uh, you know, I've looked at my hobbies. I've looked at my pastimes. I've looked at my life. I've looked at different things. And I've evaluated and I said, you know what? I don't believe this is wrong in any way. I think it's, it's acceptable. It's good. It's acceptable. It's fine. God approves it. I'm fine with it. Okay, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he documentos, in what he approves. All right, you applied the standard of the Word of God, God's absolute standard. You were able to discriminate in the epinosis and all and all discernment, and say, Father, this is approved, and uh, I'm going to do so for the glory of Jesus Christ, whatever it might be. Okay, and uh, like I say, it's not a sin issue. These are the non-issues for whatever it might be and whatever you might want to pursue for a, an occupation or a hobby or a, uh, a pastime or whatever it might be. Is, is Scrabble biblical? <laughs> All right. So, uh, you know, can I play Scrabble for the glory of Jesus Christ and whatever else? <clears throat> you know, but, but, but evaluate it and ask yourself, Okay, if uh, are, is your conscience acceptable to um, to miss a Sunday, one Sunday in, a, in the course of a year? Um, is that is your conscience good with that? Okay, if you miss two, if you miss twenty, if you miss, uh, I know people that do forty Scrabble tournaments a year. That most of those are on Saturday Sunday weekend combinations. Okay, well. I think in my line of work, that would be rough. <laughs> uh, that's probably too much pulpit supply. The church would probably start saying, you know, that young guy, we'll just take him. <laughs> He's a better preacher anyway, and we'll just take the young guy, let the old guy go play Scrabble all he wants. Okay? So the point being, though, is that you have to evaluate. All right? How much is too much? Am I on the golf course too much? Okay? Is this, has this gone from a hobby to an obsession? You know, I mean, 
if I'm pouring $20,000 a year into it, is that, is that really a hobby anymore? Okay? I'm not, by the way. That just, wherever that number came from. Um, but, but whatever it might be, and I don't care. Whatever that number is. It might be that, you know, depending on your tax bracket and whatever, that maybe that's not an outrageous fee for, for golfing or bowling or Scrabble or whatever else you're doing. You know, I, I don't know what hobbies cost. But... Um, <coughs> I'm not saying that, that $10,000 or $20,000 or whatever is, is too much to spend on a hobby, but you have to answer before the Lord why your, your pastime cost this and the grace support you offer to the congregation was a tenth of that. Okay? And then you have to answer to the Lord why your priorities are reflected in where your heart is, there your treasure will be also, right? So, you know, you don't answer to the pastor, you answer to the Lord on that. <coughs> Different things there, okay? Anyway, let me get off of that. But that's, uh, that's Romans 14. It's a great principle. It's a great application. And um, uh, the, the, the happiness, the makarios, joy, happiness that comes in that, in, that's the, uh, the sincere and blameless till the day of Christ. Your conscience is clean. You're transparent before the Lord. It's a, it's a guilt-free Christian walk. And, and, and I wouldn't trade that for the world, okay? A, a Bible church that's grace-oriented is a guilt-free Christian walk. It's not uh, Roman Catholicism, it's not legalism, it's not condemnation, it's not using guilt to motivate spirituality, okay? It's a guilt-free Christian walk that says grace and truth are, are beautiful things. <laughs> and we're saved by grace, we're walking in grace, and there's nothing else like it in this world. All right, 1 Corinthians 3.13. Each man's work will become evident. This is our judgment seat of Christ passage, right? And uh, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and others building on it, and, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. You know, clearly you've got to get saved. If, you don't, if you're not saved, then you haven't started anything. Salvation is step one, but salvation is not the end, it's the foundation. And then you've got to put a building on it. Okay? And so uh, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Notice with all six building materials, the activity is still building. Even with wood, hay, straw, the activity is still a building activity. You're just building with the inferior materials. You're uh, cutting corners. You're going. You're 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 doing it on the cheap. <coughs> you're supposed to be pouring your best into your brothers and your sisters. If you're going to edify someone else, and that's what it's about. Paul says, "I'm I laid a foundation, and others building upon it. Be careful how you build." And so you're the one that's laying the the foundation. You're the one that's building. You're the one. You are putting. You know bricks, Lego bricks, or what, you're, you're, you're adding material to your brother, to your sister, to one another. And, uh, and what are you doing? Are you cheating them because you're hoarding it for yourself? What are you doing? We should be putting our gold, silver, and precious stones into one another. Instead, I think all too often we, we go cheap with the wood, hay, and straw. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will, that's our verb, 
Well, dokimons are the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And so what am I doing this morning? I'm, I'm, I'm edifying the flock. I'm teaching doctrine. Am I, am I giving it my best? Have I studied my hardest? Am I, am I trying to communicate effectively? Or am I taking shortcuts? Am I just winging it? Am I, am I uh, um, slacking off, coasting in the Christian walk? What am I doing? Well, the fire is going to tell everybody what I'm doing, okay? Because the fire is going to show, it's going to become evident. The day will show it. Our God is a demonstrator. And if we haven't been appropriate demonstrators, that will be demonstrated. Fire will test the quality. So if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And that's the nature. Fire will purify these other items, won't consume them. It'll consume the wood, hay, and straw, so there's nothing left but the ashes in that regard. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved at so as through fire. And isn't that interesting? The, uh, if, you, if you shortcut and shortchange somebody else because you're concerned about self, you're really, on an eternal scale, doing just the opposite. You know, think about Knucklehead that didn't want to marry Ruth because he knew that he had to raise up a child in the name of Elimelech, right? Ruth's first husband, to carry on that name and that the firstborn was going to be Elimelech's heir. And, and so there was a kinsman closer than Boaz. You're familiar with the, the story in Ruth. And the kinsman that was closer than Boaz, the Bible doesn't tell us his name. I just call him Knucklehead, okay? Because he was a moron who could have married Ruth and should have married Ruth. I mean, goodness. But he said no. And, and the reason why he said was he was concerned about his own inheritance. He was concerned about his own children. Okay? No, God will never, when you're obeying the will of God, he's not gonna, you're not going to suffer for obeying the will of God in, in, that, uh, in that way. So, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved so as yet through fire. And the language there is clear. We taught this in, in the doctrine as we taught this. There are believers that will stand in the judgment seat of Christ buck naked other than the, the, the robe of white they're given as believers. They have laid up nothing. They have not grown. You know, the thief on the cross, what has he got? He got saved on the cross and then he died. He probably got a little bit of fruit for what he said. It got written down in the Bible. <laughs> I'm hoping, you know, wouldn't that be cool? Every time a pastor preaches that text, that thief gets a treasure in heaven. Anyway, but the point being, deathbed conversions, the point being, there's a lot of folks that have no fruit, and yet they're in heaven, okay? They have eternal life. They died, um, and it's all burned up. Whatever they did try to do, they did in carnality. Yet they themselves are saved, yet so as through fire. You can't lose your salvation. And the biggest loser in the church age is still greater than the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and greater than the greatest in the, in the uh, Old Testament. All right, so that's the Dachimazo used there. 11.28, 1 Corinthians 11.28. Um, this provides checks and balances <coughs> oh no wait i was thinking of a different text this um 
Examine yourself before you partake of the Lord's table. Whoever eats and drinks uh, in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. We tell unbelievers, and we have communion today, and if we have any unbelievers that are visiting, I, I warn them, I say, this is not for you. Don't take, don't take the communion table. Don't eat the bread, don't drink the cup. Okay. Uh, this is for those that are born again by faith in Jesus Christ. A man must examine himself. Okay, Dokimazo. And that's examined for approval. Identify that I am here today not worthy in myself, but eternally worthy in Christ. That I have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and I am worthy to eat the bread and drink the cup. Because it says, Dokimazo yourself and eat. It doesn't say uh, whether you should or not. It says, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Dokimazo yourself and then do for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So we warn unbelievers not to uh, partake. That's Dokimazo. 16.3 is Dokimazo. Some of them were accusing uh, <coughs> Paul of some things. And uh, Paul was coming with, uh, with a gift and he was coming with some funds and they were going to put the funds together with the funds that the Corinthians are putting together. And then that great big collection was going to go to Jerusalem. And he says, when I arrive, whomever you may dokimazo, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And so they had to make a selection. They had to appoint couriers that would be entrusted with all this money to take it to Jerusalem. You know, if we were going to put a fund together and we were going to, you know, put however much money together, and uh, will we just entrust it with, with anybody? Who, who would we let carry that? And, and that we would entrust before the Lord that they're going to carry those funds to Jerusalem. They're not going to abscond with the funds and run off to wherever. Live the good life in uh, wherever. Okay, probably Thessalonica or no. Yeah, Demas, he loved this present world and went off to Thessalonica or some other party town. Okay, well, goodness, there's more. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, uh, 2 Corinthians 13. Obviously, we're not going to get through this whole slide. We'll see some more of this on uh, Wednesday. But we understand the process of approval <coughs> is such that we are testing the quality and we're doing so not based upon our standard, not based upon our preferences even, what we might like. Contrary to that, oftentimes we're called to serve in the things we'd rather not be doing. And if we had our druthers, if we had our preference, um, you know, uh, we wouldn't go here or do this or, or this other thing, okay? The cross was not pleasant. Jesus said, if possible, let this cup pass me by, yet not my will, but thy will be done. We have to dokimazo based upon the standard of the Word of God, based upon God's character Himself, not based upon whether we like it or not, whether it's pleasant or not, whether it's fun or not. And if it costs, if, if it costs us, if we have to take up our cross and follow him, well, we can't compromise our Dokimazo standard based upon uh, carnality or subjectivity or humanity or anything on, on a relative scale. It comes down to the will of God, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Father, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for truth. I thank you for the standard that that we're learning about, Father, that love is going to abound more and more in epinosis and discernment, and that with that epinosis and discernment, Father, you expect us 
to, uh, to dokimazo all that we do, to live in a demonstration of the excellent things. That, Father, it's, it's more than simply being saved and having eternal life and going to heaven when we die, but right here, right now, all day, every day, we are demonstrating the excellent things and living it out, demonstrating it, exhibiting our, uh, our Christian walk before men and angels alike. So, Father, uh, teach us this truth. Impress upon us the necessity, Father, to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Impress upon us the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the insidious ugliness of hypocrisy and trying to live one way and, and hide something else. Father, there's nothing hidden from your sight. There's nothing hidden from your word. Your word pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. I thank you for that, Father. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.